thank you again, and I just want to extend my thanks for on behalf of myself and my family just for uh, your grace to us um, at, during our transition and even just being humbled by how much work and effort that many of you have put into the Halstead House to, uh, to get it ready for us as, as we prepare. And, um, you know, we were expecting to be able to kind of move in this weekend. That was kind of the timeline. But with all construction projects, it always takes a little bit longer than you expect. Um, and so, ladies, if you're wondering why I'm wearing the same outfit <laughs> as last time, is because when we were setting off on this saga, uh, you know, I packed one church outfit. <laughs> and the rest of them are in the, in the garage. And this is the kind of foresight you can get excited about in a pastor. Just <laughs> so let you know one, one area of weakness every, every week um, until you are no longer disillusioned with me being great. So, um, but we do, we do thank you for, for your grace to us. Um, once again, and it's, it's really encouraged our, our hearts and our souls, and we really look forward as I step into this pastoral role and be able to minister alongside you um, for the glory of the gospel. And I just want to say, uh, well, thank you for your welcome. Um, it has been, uh, well, you have welcomed us as, as Christ has welcomed us, and uh, we appreciate that. Now, many of you know that uh, we live we grew up fairly local to this area. My wife grew up, you know, in Bucks County, uh, probably, you know, 45 minutes or so from here. Um, and, you know, she went to a, a Bucks County schools her, her whole life. Um, and when she was in elementary school, well, they had uh, a celebrity might be a little bit too hard, uh, too, too high of a, of a term, but like somebody with some no, no, notoriety who is coming to, to, you know, give some presentations and hawk her, her book. Uh, she was this author, activist, and she wrote this book called The Great Kapok Tree. And her whole thing is, you know, she was this, you know, save the tree, save the rainforest environmentalist. And the, the Great Kapok Tree, and it's not a great book, um, but the message was loud and clear, right? You have this, this guy who's sent out to cut down a tree in the middle of the rainforest, and for some reason, he decides, I'm just going to take a nap first. So he lays down, he takes a nap, and in this book, you know, he dreams, and all the animals of the, the whole ecosystem come to him one by one and tell him why he shouldn't cut down the tree and how it's going to ruin their lives and destroy everything. Um, you know, and when the preacher says, man, this is a little preachy, um, you know it's a little preachy. Um, and at the end, he wakes up from his dream and decides, I can't cut down this tree. And the message is clear, you know. We need to save the trees. We need to save the rainforest. We need to do all these things. And as this, this author, uh, Lynn Cherry, she was coming for about a month ahead of time, the school, you know, the school wanted to you know, prepare themselves and get themselves excited for their coming. So they divide up all the, the classrooms and gave them a portion of you know, a hallway to decorate. And so you know, through the entire elementary school, every hallway... From floor to ceiling, they decided to make it look like a rainforest and did so by cutting out <laughs> reams and reams of construction paper. <laughs> like floor to ceiling, every single hallway, like not, not a piece of paint, you know, made its way through because they wanted to make it look like a rainforest. Now, when Lynn Cherry came and she saw their decorations, she was not happy not happy at all. 
Because what was intended to honor her was received as insult. They missed who she was. The Save the Tree environmentalist being, you know, honored through the, the cutting of reams and reams of paper, it just didn't work. Their intentions didn't matter because they missed it. They missed who she was. And as the people of God, we have often struggled with, with a pretty similar experience. And we've done so for thousands of years at different levels. Sometimes wanting to honor him, but missing who he is. Missing what he's about. Missing you know, some core aspect of, of who he is. And so our, our praises, no matter how well-intentioned, can often come across as, as an insult because we, we miss the nature of who God is. And one such uh, occasion happened, uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And in here, the, the, the people of God, well, they've been struggling, and they've been struggling for a while. And if you are using one of the, the Pew Bibles, you can turn with me to page 277 and 278 as we read through, as we read through the text. But the people of God, you know, this is in the time of the judges before the, the king has taken over Israel. And if you know about the period of the judges, well, what characterized that period? Spiritual apostasy. Idolatry. The recurring you know, phrases throughout the book is, you know, again, the people of, of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Moral and spiritual decline, uh, you know, captured the nation. And you would, if you read through the book of Judges, you would see this continued cycle. As they did evil, uh, God would give them over to their oppressors who would oppress them. They would cry out. God would send a deliverer, a judge. There would be peace, and then the judge would die. But in all these things, you know, as God was giving them over to their oppressors, it was, it was meant to be this great wake-up call for them to, to get their spiritual, their moral, their, their lives in order to align them to who God is. But we're still in this period at the beginning of, of Samuel. And the arch nemeses, the, the Philistines, have been oppressing them. And they're going to war. And we, we read about this once again in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 B. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us against today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel, they raised a great shout as the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's that shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord came into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, there's, 
Nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who's going to deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you'll be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Our text today, it, it begins with a problem. God has failed his people. They go out to fight and they lose. And, and so, well, they ask a question. And it's a very good question. Read with me again in verse 3. What do they say? When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Well, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Why has God let us down? Why didn't he measure up to the things that he said that he was going to do? Don't you remember the promises that God has given us? Don't you remember that we were going to inherit the land? Don't you remember that, you know, all of this was to be our possession? Don't you remember he said that he goes out before us in the battle? And yet, we lost. So why did that happen? Why has God let us down? It's a good question. The problem is they had the wrong solution. Because they don't get an answer, nor do they ask for an answer. To say, well, why has this happened? But what do, what's in the very next words as they say? They say, let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. So he can go and he can go with us. Save us from the hand of our enemies. Right? They had the right question, but they had the wrong solution. Right? And in so doing, they... they well, they missed something about what God was about. They missed something about God's saving activity among his people. And very oftentimes, the, the church, the people of God, are continuing to ask well, somewhat similar questions. In our own lives, battered and bruised by the world, well, why hasn't God done more? Why didn't God heal me? Why didn't God heal my spouse? Why haven't I been able to find a job? Why did I have another miscarriage? Why can't things just be easier? Why can't I find a spouse? And we may look up to heaven and say, God, don't you answer your promises? Don't you provide us a good life? Don't you meet us in our, in our hardship? Then why have you not come through in these areas? And what we see in, the, in God's people here is very oftentimes what we see in our own lives as well. That while they ask the right question, well, they don't necessarily want the answer. What they want is a, is a God to come in and do what they want rather than wanting to hear from the word of God. It's telling to us, right, as they ask this question, well, that they don't consult the prophet. And in fact, we're, 
Where does it say that they go to pick up the ark? Into Shiloh. That's where the ark was stationed. And what we learn from chapter 3, you know, uh, turn back into to 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19, if you have your Bibles. And what it says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. He let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Right? That Samuel is there. A prophet in Shiloh, the one who could tell them, well, this is what God requires of you. But they don't want to know what God requires of him. What they want is to put God's name on the hook. Do what we want. Deliver for us as we desire. But he doesn't do that. They bring out the ark Right? The, the place where, where God was to dwell. Right? He is the one who dwells among the cherubim. They bring it out and say, hey, God, you're here in battle with us. You can't lose. If you lose, rumors are going to spread around the world that, that Yahweh is not much of a God. That your deliverance from the Egyptians stopped at the Jordan River. So come on. Win for us. Deliver us. Give us the victory. And he doesn't do it. J.P. Morgan uh, once quipped that a man always has two reasons for doing anything. A good reason and a real reason. Right? And what we see in the elders of the people, what we see in God's people is, well, they, had, they perhaps had a, a good reason for doing what they did. But the real reason is this. They wanted God to, to serve them rather than the other way around. And this is a God who failed them. Not only, well, yes, they asked the right question, but they looked for the wrong solution. But they, they had the right affirmations about God, but with the wrong allegiance to God. Look back again at verse 3. What, what do they say? Right? After they say, hey, let's bring out the ark. And he says, well, he's going to go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And so they brought back the ark, verse 4. And the, the people, you know, they praise. There's a big shout, like a, a worship service. Hey, God's here with us. We got this. Right? And you, you can think about just how spiritual they can sound with what they with what they did, like the right affirmations about the nature of God that they could affirm, right? They believed in his power. They believed that he could save. They believed that as, you know, as the Lord goes before in, in, in battle, that he is the key to their success and victory. They could affirm the, the, the psalmist, you know, that, you know, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They could affirm so many right things about God, but yet, as you get down to the, the core of what's going on within their hearts, they miss, they miss the right ordering of who they are and how they stand before God. That God is there to serve us rather than the other way around. That God's benefit is his ability to deliver. And our job is to get some divine aid on our side to get us what we really want. 
Now, how many of you have ever played the game of chess before? Right. Okay. And how many haven't? Okay. A couple? All right. Well, for you, I'm sorry. Um, this may be a little confusing. Uh, but in, in chess, it, and it's a very, you know, a complex game, um, but, you know, the the way that the pieces move are not that complex. But, you know, there's different pieces, and each of them ha has a different ability in how they move and how they operate and how you use them, right? And so you have, uh, you know, what's known as, as a pawn, and these guys are the weakest of all. They can just move forward. They can't move backwards. They can attack, you know, diagonally, um, but they're, they're pretty weak pieces. They're sacrifice sacrificeable, right, pretty, pretty easily. Um, and then you have other, other pieces, like you have you know, a knight, which can kind of jump around two spaces up and then one over. Um, and then a bishop, which is able to kind of go as far as it can, unencumbered, until it runs into another piece diagonally across the board. And then it continues to get you know, more and more powerful pieces, you know, like a rook that can go horizontally or, uh, or vertically across the board until it you know, runs into another piece or attacks one of the, your opponent's pieces. Are you following with me? Are you non-chess players following me? So, you know, uh, but of course, the most powerful piece is what? It's the queen, right? The queen is able to, you know, it's like basically a, a mashup between the, the rook or castle and, and the bishop. It can go as far as it wants to unencumber, you know, unless it runs into another piece or attacks another piece, you know, horizontally and vertically and diagonally. It's by far the most powerful piece in the game. And people will look to protect their queen at, at almost all costs, except, except, while it's the most powerful piece, it's not the most important piece, is it? Right? Because there's still one other piece, and it's not terribly powerful, but it is the king. And the king's movement is limited. It can only move one space, kind of in any direction, but only one space at a time. And the whole object of the game is to protect your king and get the other person's king. Right? A checkmate is when no matter what the person does on the next move, their king will be captured. They have no place to go, no place to hide, no way to defend themselves. And so... While the queen is by far the most powerful piece, if it means protecting the king, what would you do? Well, you would sacrifice it. Easily. No questions asked. Because the, the point of the game is to protect the king at all costs. And while you can appreciate the queen's power, while you can laud her ability to, to do magnificent things, things that the king could not do, at the end of the day, the goal of the game is to protect the king, and the queen is able to be sacrificed. And for the people of God then, and often for the people of God now, that in, in our lives, you know, we have lots of things that are important to us. Lots of things that, that make up our lives. And some are are more important than others. And all, a lot of us view God a lot like, in, the, in our lives, like the queen. Right? Powerful. Able to do things that we could not do. 
able to, to conquer the enemies that we cannot conquer, able to come and deliver that we cannot deliver. But at the end of the day, the king is not God. That our lives don't revolve around God. Our lives revolve around us and my desire. And God, where if he fits into it, is there to protect, to preserve, to satisfy me. I am the king, and he is the queen. And we can, we can deny, or we can couch this in lots of spiritual language where we, where we proclaim just how powerful he is. But that the center of our lives is not him. He's sacrificable. And God is, is that, that's not what he requires of his people. He calls all of our lives to be centered around him. That he is not sacrificeable, you know, sacrificeable for our own pleasure and comfort. That he is called to be all in all. That his name is going to be glorified. And he, so his rebuke of his people, that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, it still resounds today. We see this we see this perspective when, when our prayer lives are, are filled with so much with God, fix this situation, fix this circumstance, but almost never, God, fix me. We turn a deaf ear to, to the word of God that wants to come in and say, this is what it takes to serve me. This is what it takes to be a holy people as I've called you to be holy. But we don't want that. We want God, fix my circumstances. Give me what I want. Heal my friend. Help me get, help me pass this test. Help me get into this college. Help me get a job. And in so doing, we miss a significant part of who God is. And so one of my favorite commentators, he remarks on this passage that when the church stops confessing thou art worthy and begins chanting thou art useful, you know the ark of God has been captured again. And far too often as his people, we, we see God in terms of his usefulness rather than his worthy, worthiness. And such a God will fail you. Because that's missing what God is about. So how do you know if we're doing this? How do you know if, if I am like them? Well, I kind of mentioned it a little bit before. When you call on God to conquer your enemies or conquer your circumstances, but to leave you untouched, You've demoted God from being the king of your life. When your prayers are filled with change this circumstance, change, you know, uh, deliver me from, from this, but just let me be in, in, in how I live and how I act. Don't change me. Don't, don't mess with the stuff that I love and care for. Well, then... 
then we know that we have demoted God from the place that he ought to be. And we're getting ready for a big disappointment in him. A few years ago, I was at a, at a youth camp, and they were, they were singing this song. It's, a, I think, a fairly popular song. Um, I think the title is King of My Heart. And, and it comes to the bridge where it kind of gives almost a, a, a popular level idea of who God is meant to be in, in our lives. And so um, within the, you know, the first three or four times singing the bridge where it's, oh, you're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. Um, you know, after, you, know, you, you sing about 34 times, um, but after the three, you know, first three or four of them, you know, I began to think, and even began to think about this passage. It was like, no, that's not who God is. And I know I'm perhaps over-cynically reading it, and I tend to over-cynically read things, um, but as, as you're singing this bridge, it's like that, that God's worthiness to be praised on is that he's never going to let me down. It, it misses who God is calling himself to be in our lives. He will let you down. He's not going to conform to all of our expectations, all of our demands, all of our attempts to manipulate him to, do, to give us some little divine aid to better our lives all the time. Yes, he does answer prayers. Yes, he calls us to cast our cares before him. Yes, he, he, he does give good gifts to his children. But yet, but yet, he is not just useful. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who, has in, who, who is enthroned of the world, who is worthy of all of our worship and praise and adoration, not just because he does good things, though he does, but because he's holy. Because he's righteous. Because there is none like him. And that all, you know, even the, even the, 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 mythos, the, the myths of God throughout the nations, that none compare to him. And so he is worthy of our praise. Now we run into a problem, if you're introspective much. At some point, sooner or later, you're going to realize I don't come to God with motives pure as the driven snow. That I come to God looking for something, for some sort of divine aid. That if I was really honest with myself, I don't love God just because he's worthy, but I love God because he, well, can do stuff for me. And how much of that infiltrates our own minds and hearts can, may vary. But, but at least at the very beginning of our relationship with God, I don't think any of us have come to God just because he is worthy. We have come to him because, well, he's offered us something, haven't we? And such is not good enough. But what has God done for us? Has he sat there and crossed his arms and said, listen, no, go back. Get your motives right. Love me for who I am. Love me just because I'm worthy of it. Praise my name just because, well, you know, I'm the creator of the world and I can squash you like a buck. No, he doesn't. But nor does he, he go the opposite way and just say, well, you know, like, you know, the, 
like a, a lady in an abusive relationship who is contentious to have any sort of affection thrown his way. No, no, no. You know, he, he demands a right relationship. He demands that his people order their lives rightly and place him at the center. But yet he knows that we can't do it. We can't love him for who he is. We can't love him just because he's worthy. We can't praise him without any, completely dis, you know, uh, without self-interest in, in how he's going to affect our lives. No, no, we can't do it. So what does he do? He provides one for, who can do it for us. He gives us the, the son who is not like us, who does all that the father requires, who empties himself of the, the you know, the divine nature, to, to take the form of a servant, to, to be obedient to death, even death on the cross. He is the one who, who prays truthfully, wholeheartedly, authentically, and honestly, not my will, but yours be done. He's the one who, who does what we could not do. That the people of God can rest in his righteousness. And in him, and through him, and by him, receive the Father's welcome, despite the fact that our motivations are often clouded and half-hearted and mired. Isn't it a good thing that God's not like us? Isn't it a good thing that, that God extends his grace to his people through his Son, that we, even unworthy even to approach him, yet we receive the Father's welcome through the Son? That what we could not do Christ has done for us. And so what do we do, beloved? What do we do when we realize that, you know, I look at my life and I realize that in many ways I miss who God is and what he's about, that I come with, with selfish motives, that I come before him, well, not loving him for his worthiness, but in many ways loving him for his utility. Well, what do we do? Well, certainly the first step is to, to admit it, to confess it, to repent as much as we can. But it's not to, to go back and hot, shield ourselves and hide ourselves until we can get our motives right. No, it's to, to trust in the righteousness of the Son. To dwell on the fact that, that while we are unworthy to be called his children, that through the Son that we have been adopted. That while we couldn't come before his throne, that we come with impure motives and, and half-hearted devotion, yet through the Son that we are received anyway. And as we do that, something amazing is going to happen. We're going to find ourselves being transformed more and more into the image and likeness of the Son. We're going to experience the, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit who's going to conform and transform and reform our own half-hearted natures into ones that can truly love the Lord, our God. That in what God requires of us, he has provided for us in the Son. And for that, for that, he's worthy of worship. And that's good news. Let's pray. And I'll invite the worship team up once again. Kind Father, We thank you. We thank you once again that, that you have provided for us, your son, 
to do what we could not do. And Father, we give, uh, we give you access to our lives even now. That Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us. That you would reveal to us the ways that we have demoted you from, uh, from your rightful rule over our lives. Where we have adored you and praised you, not for your worthiness, but for your utility that you would be useful to me. Holy Spirit, speak to the hearts of your people to reveal to us these ways that we can, uh, that we can confess, that we can repent, that we can refine, find healing and forgiveness and life in your Son. And as your people, Lord, our hearts say yes to you. So come and speak to us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.